another Fuds on Film podcast. I am Drew Tavendale. With me this evening, Scott Morris. Well, hello there. And Mr. Craig Eastman. Hello. This evening, we are going to be discussing the perhaps slightly nebulous genre of tech noir, which is, for those who are unfamiliar with the term, something of a hybrid of science fiction and sometimes steampunky type films with the visual style and detective type leanings of many classic film noirs. Hmm. It's a term that comes from the tech noir nightclub in James Cameron's The Terminator, although it's actually a film from two years before that that most neatly encapsulates the tech noir genre. So if you want to understand what tech noir means, think Blade Runner. Hmm. It's quite, like you say, it's quite nebulous, isn't it? It's more of a, an idea than a genre in and of itself. It can encompass mm-hmm. one or more of a number of stylistic and thematic things. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm thinking that there's quite often a sort of retro futuristic vibe about it. It can encapsulate sort of classic noir themes uh, and cues musically and visually. Um, although, you know, it can be in the instance of at least one of the films we were going to watch tonight set fairly contemporarily. It's a fascinating genre as much as for our inability to really pin it down as it is for uh, for many of the films that we'll talk about. Of course, it uses a lot of the uh, same plot devices that noirs use, amnesia and sort mm. of hapless protagonists and all these kind of things who have kind of swept along in events they don't quite understand. Uh, mm-hmm. And very often with somebody in- investigating one mystery with actually a larger mystery going on in the background of it is yeah. Yeah. something that shares with a lot of film noir. I mean, I've been looking forward to covering this because essentially it started off as a list of some of my favourite films and then we kind of <laughs> grown the scope a little bit more as we we thought about it but uh, yeah there's there's a number of films on here that I'm really very very fond of so very pleased to be digging into this yes likewise uh, there are a couple of films here that didn't do much for me but it's a let's you know we're saying it's a fairly loose appellation but we'll stick with the genre that this is really quite a rewarding genre particularly stylistically mm-hmm. and story-wise sometimes as well and it's certainly for as much as we say it's nebulous as a group they are fairly distinctive and films tend to have strong visual style and it's very appealing from that point of view mm-hmm. and a few films in here that really are amongst some of my favorites of all time like with you scott and it's just something i also have been looking forward to Shall we start with, I guess, let's lead in from our, our last uh, topic of discussion on the previous podcast and segue seamlessly from that to this via Alphaville, I suppose. Yes, as you mentioned, Alphaville ties back into our traumatic <laughs> new wave episodes <laughs> from last month. You uh, live and you learn. It's a Jean-Luc Godard film, and so this is one more of his films to talk about while sniping about how bad Breathless is. <laughs> and because, as you will recall, Breathless is a garbage film for garbage people. Alphaville is perhaps, in a sense, the most literal example of tech noir that there is. It's not taking elements of film noir and applying it to sci-fi. It simply is a film noir that happens to have a sci-fi story. It centres around hard-boiled agent Lemmy Caution, played by Eddie Constantine, who is a character and an actor no stranger to the genre, having his own series of films, played very much of the Sam Spade, Philip Marlowe via Humphrey Bogart school of detecting. However, none of those earlier films took place in the allegedly futuristic dystopia of Future Paris, or Alphabill, as it's now called. It's an odd place, and no mistake. It's ruled by a rampant AI, Alpha 60, who has somehow outlawed concepts like free thought, poetry, love, and such which I suppose proves that computers can read, or at least that this one can read 1984. <laughs> or, or that, yes, or that, or that computers don't like the French New Wave either. <laughs> 
So Lemmy's tasks are to track down another previously dispatched agent who's gone dark, then convince Alpha 60's creator Professor Von Bront, played by Herd Vernon, the error of his ways and have him return to the Outlands, that being seemingly anywhere that's not Alphaville, or failing that, to cessate Von Brown and his obnoxious robo-ruler. <laughs> While it's much more coherent in a general sense than the other Godard films we've spoken about recently, it's still falling down on the specifics, and again, I'm happy to lay this at the door of the misguided obsession with improvising everything. It's particularly baffling when there does appear to be a overarching narrative in mind at the outset, well, certainly more so than the meandering, pointless, breathless, not that we're bitter. As such, the capsule recap makes this film sound a lot more coherent than it plays out in actuality, adding a puzzling layer of opaqueness to the characters' actions and motivations that only really detracts from the enjoyment of the piece. But there are elements in there to enjoy, in particular, Goddard and cinematographer Raoul Cotard have very much nailed the noir aesthetic, to the point where I can even forgive them for having a little fun with it, when Lemmy's in conversation with one of his fellow agents in a, a dark hallway lit only by a bare hanging light bulb, it seems like you can't resist just setting it swinging, just so you can get the effects in the, the shadows. Unfortunately, the problem that the film can't get over is that the future, now that we're here, doesn't look very much like they figured it would do back in 1965. It's very much got that uh, Star Trek, the original series, vibe to oh. it. The modernist and brutalist architectures that they use as locations might have seemed quite strange and futuristic back then, but now they just seem like you know, dilapidated <laughs> office buildings. Yeah, now they're car parks. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Most critically, of course, uh, even the best imagination of 1965's idea of futuristic computer technology doesn't really match up to how technology actually evolved. And, well, it seems a little unfair to pick an Alphaville from this angle, but the stark contrast between its vision of the future and, well, let's say, you know, it's, it's lots of dials and switches and the like, and compare that to, say, the phone in your pocket, and it, it does kind of pull you out of the experience. It's also got a bit of an issue with its world building, with no particular attention given to how society could wind up apparently ceding all free will and control to a computer system, which pretty much by definition didn't exist one day and then the next did, um, <laughs> at which point everyone signed up for a lifetime of oppression. At least Orwell's state control could be imagined to have started from the basis of there being a state in the first place and then just creeping outwards. This one seems like someone's just hit a switch overnight and went, yep, okay, I'll go along with that. Sounds fun. Overall, Alphaville represents a fascinating early outing for the subgenre and it's not altogether unenjoyable even today. However, it's very much an artifact of its time and on a number of levels doesn't stand up to modernity's facts on the ground, which really does hamper the enjoyment of the film. Uh, if you're interested in other films that we go on to cover here, uh, it's worth going back and taking a look at it, but I don't think that it needs to be a priority. Lemmy Caution, though, is the protagonist's name. Is that deliberately uh, meant to sound like some a meaningful thing in English, I think? I would imagine so. It's based on some American novels, I think. The Lemmy Caution character, who, as I say, has, been, has his own little kind of franchise going, which is quite popular in France for some reason. It kind of was brought to a crushing end by this, because it was kind of hard to put the, the series back into, well, back in its box when you've sent it off to the wild future. <laughs> so I think it was a bit of a, a bit of a nail in that particular career, but no, it's, it's based on some pulp imagining, so I, I'd imagine it's something that no one thought was particularly clever, but, well, fits the character well enough, I suppose. It's not just a warning from the past about Motorhead. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, God, I, I laughed even though I saw that coming. <laughs> so something that's sort of maybe of historical interest in this subgenre then, Scott, but not of particular merit. Yes, correct. If only we could classify Groundstar Conspiracy from 1972 as having similar historical interest. <laughs> Recommended by some as an outlier and example of the genre's 
Genesis. George Peppard starring the Ground Star Conspiracy sets up a potentially intriguing premise that in the aftermath of a break-in at a top-secret government facility, the severely injured perpetrator, a man by the name of Wells, claims, apparently legitimately, no memory of the events. Peppard's tough-talking investigator Tuxen, <laughs> it's just a great name, then sets about <laughs> tightening the metaphorical vice in order to make Wells sing like a canary. But the full extent of his tactics and the nature of the break-in will remain a tightly guarded secret up until the movie's final act. Uh, I describe Groundstar as potentially intriguing because director Lamont Johnson and writer Douglas Hayes seem hell-bent on flushing the premise firmly down the toilet of ineptitude with workaday TV movie production values, pedestrian mise-en-song and a script that has all the narrative professionalism of a muddled school stage play. Quite apart from logic holes you could drive several of the proverbial double-decker buses through, Groundstar struggles even to make the most mundane scenes make much sense. One in particular where a helicopter circles at an open-sided boathouse at a distance of just a few yards, while the antagonists inside remain entirely oblivious in both sight and sound, sticks in the mind. But you can pretty much throw a stone in this movie and be assured you'll hit a goof. In terms of dialogue, we are here firmly on the wrong side of the middle of the road, with a cardboard cutout of George Peppard wandering around like a confused ant who caught a brief whiff of pheromone on the breeze, making a nuisance of himself to military generals and espousing the kind of the president can blow it out his ass tough guy talk that was already tired by 1972, never mind in the post-pulp fiction era. That wouldn't be so bad had Peppard the grace to present even the vaguest facade of investment in the material, but his mind here is, unfortunately, firmly elsewhere, and one suspects he probably only took the gig because someone said he'd get to spend a couple of days riding around Vancouver in the aforementioned helicopter. Likewise, the portrayal of Wells by Michael Sarazen, who looks like a coupon offer David Essex, is all doe-eyed vacancy and conveys none of the immediate frustration one would expect of an amnesiac, nor any hint of someone who is accused of being a dangerous insurgent. The movie's love interest is provided by Christine Belfort, and there is a tantalising suggestion throughout that she is certainly more deeply involved in the plot than first meets the eye. Uh, she isn't. <laughs> like most of the second to third tier billing in this movie, Belford's involvement could easily have been substituted for a tennis ball on a string or a big mouth Billy Bass without anyone really noticing. And in fact, I've just made a much more interesting movie inside my own head. Whether through disinterest on my part or by willfully baffling plotting on the movies, by the time things were being wrapped up I found myself either unaware and or disinterested in the who, what or why of it all. I suppose there is some truth in the movie's tagline of only if you like gripping suspense and surprise endings, as I was so bored by it all I had forgotten the cheese on toast I'd placed under the grill sometime during the third act. It certainly was a surprise when our smoke alarm had a conniption fit. <laughs> gripping suspense as I wondered whether the wet towel would suppress the flames before the kitchen units took light. This movie almost burned my house down. Avoid. <laughs> that sounds like an Amazon review. <laughs> <laughs> and now I have nothing left to achieve in life. Thank you, Drew. I'm guessing I'm not alone in that uh, summation, although I don't expect everyone's house to almost burn down. I can't no. say I was as negative about it as you were, but I certainly didn't care much about it. It was not a film that warrants really any reflection on it at all. There's interesting elements in there. I mean, I like the fact that you have uh, nominally the hero protagonist being possibly a, a murderer mm, and certainly a sociopath. Yeah, and the guy who is, you know, trying to track this guy down is, you know, should really be the good guy, but he's kind of playing, you know, he's behaving like Jack Bauer as as twenty four worst, you know. It's, mm -hmm. uh, there's a kind of an interesting inversion there, but they don't really do anything with it. And, and as you say, if you're, if you're going to underwrite the female lead character this badly, why bother having one in there at all? Certainly, entirely disposable film. I can't say I hated it, but mm. 
certainly wouldn't recommend anyone watch it. <laughs> I was convinced throughout. I thought this has to have been a made-for-TV movie, right? And I don't yeah. think it. I don't think it was. It, it was. Uh, it was a cinema release stateside, right? As, I as far so, as I yeah. know, but it does have that aesthetic. Uh, yes, especially and that opening sequence with the uh, running down the tunnel thing. That was just. I thought, oh my days. Okay, you, you had a certain amount of pyrotechnics budget, and you really want to make sure. Yeah. How many how many cameras have you used here? How many times yes. are we going to see the same thing from a slightly different? Uh, you know range yeah i seem to remember having a wildly inappropriate soundtrack at a number of moments as well and that's possibly one of them yes um but by the time we got to the end of the film it was one of the more minor flaws that i could think of with it so yeah. <laughs> it just made no sense to me no sense whatsoever yeah it's one of those annoying twist endings that you can't well admittedly you can't see it coming but only because there's no hint whatsoever that such a thing would be possible yeah right in the, this film's world uh, until you get to the end and it's yeah. revealed to you so you go oh well right fine. exactly but that's Seems stupid, but by the okay. time you've got there, you've kind of, you've kind of forgotten what a lot of the plot is and been thrown complete misdirection by things such as, um, such as the female uh, lead character whose name I've completely forgotten again. Like I say, who you assume is going to have a bigger role in this uh, and is going to have some sort of significance to the plot, and absolutely does not. So it's no. it's not through it's not through skilled misdirection. It is just <laughs> absolutely bafflingly pieced together. Uh, so yeah, by the time you get to the ending, it's kind of pulled the rug out from any sort of surprise because it's just another thing that happened that might well be unrelated to anything else. <laughs> Problem I had with this, I think I don't have quite the amount of hatred towards it as you, Greg. I'm probably closer to Scott's more. Just, mm. I found it impossible to care about anyone or anything in it because I knew nothing about the film at all other than that somebody that obviously wasn't me had listed it for watching for this. Mm-hmm. Um, and then just, it, just only paying half attention at the start because it didn't grab me from, from the very beginning and it said, based on the story of The Alien by L.P. Davis, not like it. Oh, right. Um, I was expecting, I know, something more like They Live or something for some reason, but <laughs> maybe combined with that picture you posted on Twitter a few days before I watched it myself, like with the guy with his face covered in blood, but look at his eyes really. <laughs> it sets itself up as being some sort of ultra mysterious kind of, that's like what's going actually going on at this facility. It's hinted at that it might be of extraterrestrial origin or something like you know, something revelatory like that, yeah. some like a real uh, global game changer that's being that's being hushed up at this facility. And there's just it turns out that it's none of that. Yes. Yeah, that's um, so I think it set me off on the wrong foot. So I'm expecting that because of the genre and that mm. coming up. So I just with that name, and obviously I know there's a there's another like a political meaning of alien, which it could mm. have been as well. But well, I suppose it's sort of that one because he's Greek. I think yes, yeah. I think of. But, <laughs> I think I think about it now, and I like I I can't even remember. And it was only about a week ago that I watched this. I think, and I can't even remember what the stakes were necessarily, other than the fact that these guys were a bit miffed that their nice new facility got blown up. As they needed to find remember, out who the conspirators yeah, were. Just, George Pepper's trying to find out which high-ranking person was responsible. That, there's no that consequence the of it, or there's no really implied consequence of any of no. this having happened. Don't get me wrong, I'm sure my overall opinion has been somewhat swayed by the fact that this film uh, was responsible for my kitchen going on fire. But uh, I'm still not going to go out my way to recommend it, not even as being of historical interest to the genre. I think you can you can no, quite safely of, move on. It's of precisely zero interest yes. to man or beast, I think. Nothing to see here. <laughs> okay, so after that then, not one we need to spend too long on, because I'm sure most people are very familiar with this, but we move on to... The defining film of the genre, 1982's Blade Runner. Even if you don't like it, and I sort of don't and sort of do, very, very ambiguous relationship with this film, it is undeniably stylish, influential, distinctive, and pretty much the one film that sums up the genre like no other. 
It has so many of the tropes of film noir, the burned out detective, the mystery going on in the background behind the mystery or the case he's working on, the mysterious femme fatale, the moody streets of LA, the fact it almost entirely takes place at night, the saxophone music. (laughs) (laughs) Electronic saxophone, please. Yes. I'm sorry, Vangelis, I besmirch you. There's probably a little point in going into too much detail on Blade Runner, right? Because I'd be very surprised if people don't already, who are listening to this podcast, don't already know the movie. But I suppose for our purposes, it's essential in that it's kind of the poster child for the genre. Mm. It's right? the archetype. Yeah, if you explain to people tech noir, or if they already know what tech noir is, and you ask them, for example, they're going to reach for Blade Runner. And I think that's because it's the first time that all of the elements were kind of distilled together into one package. And not only that, but with obviously a fantastic production value amazing production design like the film to this day is still one of the most aesthetically pleasing films i've ever clapped eyes on and a huge a huge deal of atmosphere the film the film does have its detractors i I understand that yeah (laughs) there may be one just on the other end of a, a mumble call in this very podcast but for me personally i think anyone who listened to our inept first couple of episodes of this podcast will already know that it's my second favorite film of all time behind Lawrence of Arabia and um, I've been in love with this film for a long time now and it's still one of the greatest experiences I've had on a big screen because I was fortunate enough to go and get to see the final cut when it showed in a very limited run here in the UK and I think there's an entire separate podcast to be had around Blade Runner on the assumption that you're not Drew and <laughs> I, I don't know you've got to have a counterpoint yeah I don't know if it's worthwhile anyone having if we want to um, espouse any thoughts on it here other than the obvious well for me it's not too much beyond what we discussed in the last podcast, regardless of whether I like it or not, I can absolutely appreciate how distinctive and influential it is. And it's, I know there, there is much more to this tech noir subgenre that we're covering than just aesthetics, mm-hmm. but it's the, it's the easiest thing to get a grasp of, I think. It's the easiest yeah. thing to point people towards, and it's probably the thing that lasts longest in the memory. It's the, it's the pinnacle thereof, isn't it? Yeah, and then Blade Runner is the pinnacle of that, absolutely. Mm-hmm. It, it's the one that looks so, so distinctive, and it's nearly, it's more than 30 years old now. Yeah, basically. it's like 32 years um, old or something, yeah. But it hasn't aged in quite the same way that a lot of other sci-fi stuff has. And still, you know, 30 years later, it's like you point that you see like one scene from Blade Runner, like, oh, that's Blade Runner. You mm-hmm. don't have to question which film it is. It's one of those few films that is, is actually iconic. Mm-hmm. Um, and people quite it's an rightly... It's word, but yes, it is. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And people all the time talk about how this is one of those keystone films that really still influences cinema today. And I think you quite rightly point out, Drew, that the, the, the way in that which that is still most prevalent now is in terms of the aesthetic of it. And it wasn't really until we saw, I think, like the fifth element back in when, 1997 or something like that? It's round about then, yeah. Yeah, that we saw sort of a big budget sci-fi film try and buck the aesthetic that Blade Runner established. And even then, there are sort of few examples now that you can't see the immediate influence of even to this day. So a hugely influential film. And regardless of whether you're a, you know, a big fan of it or not, there's there's no denying the influence it has, and in particular in this uh, the genre that we're discussing today. I think what surprised me most, I watched it this time for the first time in high def. I think the last time I watched it was of my DVD mm. copy. Mm-hmm. And right, it just it base. just looks so lovely. Yeah, it's a big, big day. difference. I say you've really been missing out if you've not seen it. I mean, oh, the restoration's in, insane. Yeah, yeah there's a really good job with that. When they've released the final cut, you know, Warner Brothers spent 25 years fanning about with it yeah um, and they finally released it in probably the best version and did a really good job of restoring it because the original dvd copy was a 
abysmal. Oh, it really yeah, was. It was. A criminal how badly treated that was by Warner Brothers yeah. before. The 4K presentation is absolutely ridiculous yeah, if, yeah. if you do get a chance, because I know it's, it's done the rounds again a couple of times since. If you if you mm-hmm. ever get the chance, if you have any interest in the aesthetic of cinema at all, and you get a chance to go and see a, a screening of the um, of the final cut print, um, like sell sell your mother if you have to to get a ticket it's just phenomenal to see it projected kind of just be repeating what we said in our first episode really but uh, I think for me what stands out is firstly just the whole atmosphere of it if you just Mm -hmm. watch this as a mood piece I can happily sit in front of it for a couple of hours and just watch it without actually thinking about anything that's happening there Mm -hmm. and it just looks so incredible and I think secondly the the, the other levels of there when you actually do want to think about it is you've got this lovely little narrative that's really wrapping up lots of things about identity and memory and uh, Mm. what it is to be human all these kind of things Uh, existential your your usual Philip K. Dick stuff Mm -hmm. and it's all there but you're not being beaten about the head with it you don't actually need to really think much about that at all and still you can enjoy the film but if you do want to do all that stuff simultaneously it's just amazing to do so you can see the influence that it's had on everything of course as we say but uh, such a such a touchstone film for in so many ways that if you somehow haven't seen it then obviously you must and it's strange almost that strange also that too I mean it's so distinctive yet in itself if you were to like break it down into components wouldn't necessarily be that original you know the no it's it's, it's quite derivative cigarette smoking woman the man in the trench coat the Mm -hmm. rainy streets the um, spotlights the smoke filled rooms Mm -hmm. all such classic film noir staples yet somehow that film just seems to take them and go these are mine now. Yeah, the, those elements have individually been appropriated in sci-fi before Blade Runner came along, but probably to this day still one of the few films that actually came out and really doubled down on it. Uh, and like you say, Drew, kind of took, almost took ownership of the genre mm-hmm. where it would be kind of hard after Blade Runner to make to make like a, cl- a classic noir film that wasn't sci-fi almost. But um, yeah, like I say, it is, if you look at it technically, yeah, it's actually incredibly derivative uh, if, you, if you set aside the thematics. Then in terms of story and, and such, even a lot of the visual elements, then yes, it is actually quite derivative, but it reappropriated those elements and remixed them in a way that was so, I suppose, full-bodied and was such commitment uh, and with such excellence in every sort of technical respect. I think commitment's a good word. And probably excellence too, actually. Yeah, she's it's a, it's a film, that, this it's a film it. that clearly believes in itself. Looked at all these film noir things in the 30s and 40s and 50s and then it's like, regards to the sci-fi elements, like mm-hmm. it just distilled them to their pure essence and then just went right and polished them to a high mirror shine mm-hmm. and said, right, this is how you do it. Yeah, nobody's been able to look past it since. And if you took the replicants out of it and you took the flying cars out of it, um, you could probably just pass it off as being one of the greatest noir films ever made. It kind of it's it, it could live independently of of the sci-fi banner bar one or two elements. That's Blade Runner. Um, if for some reason you haven't seen it already, then do yourself a favor. As myself and as one of our followers on Twitter, Fraser McGuggins Fuggins on Twitter said, you know, he doesn't. He thinks it's overrated. And you may well do. I myself don't like it that much. I can't stop watching it, and it is incredibly distinctive. That's Fraser's, undeniable. Fraser's from Boness, so we'll leave it <laughs> at that. Uh, right. So from Blade Runner, which is the archetype of the genre, we move on to the film that gave the genre its name, which is James Cameron's 1984, The Terminator. Terminator, very much like Blade Runner, needs needs very little introduction. So let's let's probably not waste time introducing it. You've already seen it, so it's mainly of interest to us here because uh, for some reason, it wasn't until Terminator came along. 
that the genre gained its moniker and it comes from the technoir nightclub where Sarah Connor first encounters the Terminator with Kyle Reese. There's not a lot to be said about other than that. It's not, not necessarily the purest example of the genre, but then again, besides Blade Runner, probably what is, but it certainly it certainly melds the future technology element with a lot of the action taking place, obviously, at night in the seamy streets of Los Angeles. And, yeah, I'm not sure what there is to say about it other than that. In terms of it being a film noir or tech noir, probably not an awful lot, I think, really, apart from some stylistics. I, I did watch this again just the other day, just to refresh myself coming into this and uh, perhaps the first hour or so is a bit more noirish than you may expect mm. it to be uh, certainly not more than i remember it to be mm. uh, but it's not exactly the primary example from it at heart this is a chase film uh, mm. perhaps the really major i guess noir trope if you will is uh, probably sarah connor's initial arc because she's very much a, an everyday character who's just swept along in this course of events that she doesn't understand and can't and of course that's, that's perhaps one of the main plus points for me about this film is just watching the way that linda hamilton can come from being a, an ordinary waitress with nothing much on her mind to Quite believably, at the end, being the the futurist, the, well, the, the future trainer of the leader of the resistance, I think Killing that's a, robots somehow manages to to make that, uh, which is quite a tall order, come off quite well. If you just want to talk about praise about Terminator, we don't need to do an awful lot of that because mm. obviously it's one of the most iconic films in the last few decades. It's a terrific film. Schwarzenegger's never been more menacing. It's almost a shame that he went from this to immediately just being the hero and everything because he plays such a good villain. And most of the effects work still looks pretty good. There's only a few scenes now that we've upgraded everything to high def that doesn't quite cut the mustard. And mm. fortunately, perhaps that is the climax of the film. Yeah. That bit looks kind of shaky today, but I think it builds up so much goodwill at the start of that with some really good effects work earlier on that I can kind of forgive all of that. Even its glances into the future war uh, <laughs> actually looks much better than, say, Terminator Salvation did. So, you know, <laughs> it, it's got that going for it. But yeah, it's got so some if, wonderful model work, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's really, really nice. The whole kind of grimy Los Angeles underbelly gives it quite a nice atmosphere. There's obviously many iconic moments of it that we don't need to go into here. Mm. Yeah, if somehow you've got this far and haven't seen Terminator, then I don't know what you're doing. Go and watch it immediately. It's a very, very, very good film. If you've been the passing interest in science fiction, it's uh, essential viewing, and I assume you've already viewed it if you got this far into the podcast. <laughs> it, uh, it, it gave us the phased plasma rifle in the 40-watt range, <laughs> and that's all you need to know. Just what you see, pal. Okay, and this is a genre that has covered animation. Most notably, I think, in Mamoru Oshii's 1995 seminal film Ghost in the Shell, which Scott is going to tell you about. This is the only animated uh, film that's made it onto our list, although it was pointed out on Twitter that there is indeed another entry into the genre, if you count a short film, um, from The Animatrix, mm -hmm. uh, the detective, detective story, story short. Story, so yeah. I'd actually completely forgotten about that, yeah. so it's thanks to uh, Sonic Yoda on yeah, Twitter for pointing that one out to me. Yep, very good show. Actually, just watch that again just for the it is very good. Clearly, a standout in that Animatrix uh, DVD, which I think is actually in many ways much more enjoyable watch now than any of the other two yeah, uh, Matrix sequels. Oh, the yes. Animatrix is generally. I mean, some of it's clearly experimental but it's genuinely interesting as yeah. compared would, to the final two Matrix films. I would argue that the Animatrix is arguably more fun to watch now than the original Matrix, which I don't <laughs> think is holding up too well, but I digress. Yes, so Ghost in the Shell is a Mamoru Oshii film. It's adapted from 
Masamun Shiro's manga, and it is a gorgeously realised tale of the chase of a computer hacker that's causing some political bother that turns into an exploration of the implications of artificial intelligence, cybernetics, and transhumanism. While it has a number of deftly handled action scenes, it's the more philosophical bent that makes it something special and belays the stigma that anime can occasionally suffer from as being too lightweight. While it is wearing its influences on its sleeves, there's no denying that it's also gone on to influence itself. Many science fiction films that followed it both stylistically and narratively, such as your aforementioned Matrix there and mm-hmm. that. Don't want to be going into this too much. Um, I spoke about it at some length in our first podcast again. It is one of my favourite films. It's clearly one of the best animes around. It looks so amazing, even to this day. Really lovely use of visual cell animation, and there's some early use of CG, but it's actually kind of blended subtly, so it never draws attention to itself. So it, just the whole thing doesn't look like it's aged the day. Um, as I say, it's got some of the best action scenes you'll see in anime. And while there is some, perhaps, scope for criticising the way that it's structured, it's all about you know, stop, start, stop, start, and the stops tend to involve lots of speaking about philosophy. It's all really interesting philosophy. And this is an 80-minute film that packs in more ideas than most films manage when they're spun out to like an entire series, such as perhaps, say, the <laughs> Matrix trilogy. <laughs> um, it's, as I say, densely packed, but infinitely rewarding to watch and rewatch. Um, watch this many times now. Still really enjoy it. Very good stuff. As I say, if you want the full skinny, go back to episode one. You can hear me talk about it some more, but just if you've not seen it before, then certainly dig it out. In terms of it being a tech noir, I guess mainly it's the visuals. This has the whole kind of somewhat Blade Runner-ish aesthetic. Clearly it's been made its own. Uh, Oshie took it and, and turned it and made it into something that works within his world, but there's a lot of grimy city streets and you know steam and all this kind of lighting uh, stuff going on. It makes it look absolutely a, a treat visually to watch and has that genre trope of investigating a mystery that turns out to be linked to a far greater mystery in the background. So it's certainly worthy of inclusion in this list and if somehow you've managed to avoid seeing it, then certainly you must go and do so immediately. It's good light. Thanks for your input. <laughs> <laughs> no, let's say obviously visually, visually resplendent. It's been a long time since I watched Ghost in the Shell and I didn't get a chance to revisit it before recording this, so it would be remiss of me to try and uh, offer too much insight. But uh, visually, yes, still a stunning piece of animation and still holds up incredibly well today. In terms of presentation, it maybe looks a little bit less sophisticated than a lot of more recent cell-drawn animation, but still delivered with such panache and such visual flair that it still stands up on its own two feet and can go toe-to-toe with pretty much anything else in this day and age. I agree, Scott, that my recollection of it is that thematically it's interesting, but in common with quite a lot of Japanese output, when dealing with sort of deeper thematic stuff, you're right, it does have a tendency to to border on um, being a little bit wordy and spend too much time delving into that stuff in sort of very obtuse ways but it's still like you say at 80 minutes it's certainly not outstaying it's welcome and I seem to remember it feeling even shorter than that the last time that I watched those delves into uh, self-indulgent society it's incredibly well paced it's got some fantastic action and yeah it's a more thoughtful piece of animation than a great deal of uh, of stuff even today so if you know again if you haven't watched it then I heartily recommend it and uh, I certainly plan to uh, revisit it even after recording this podcast because uh, our inclusion here reminded me of the fact that yes it's a great great piece of animation that I haven't taken the time to watch in a good I guess probably 10 years by this point so I should probably really go back and watch it again it's a fantastic film it's very iconic but 
it's one that I have done at a great disservice by not having watched in many, many years now. And I will remedy that. I didn't have time to do before this podcast. It's one of those anime properties that kind of resulted in a great number of spin-offs and a, a very much an expanded universe, right, Scott? Yes, the initial one being, I guess, the standalone complex, which I've not actually seen more than one episode of, so I'm not really going to talk about that too much. It was followed up by uh, Ghost in the Shell 2 Innocence, although there's some kind of conflicting information as to whether it's really a true sequel to Ghost in the Shell, but uh, it's kind of a little difficult to gauge Mabru Oshii's intentions given the the kind of stuff that he's been saying about it, but it has the same characters and chronologically follows the first movie, so that's good enough for me to call it a sequel. Um, Your central protagonists this time round are Bato and Togusa, who are the kind of sidekicks of the central character of the first film, uh, Major Kusanagi. They've been assigned the case of a robot sex doll, a gynoid, that's somehow gone haywire and slaughtered its owner. And that's bad enough when it happens once, but it's becoming a serial occurrence. And Section 9 suspect that shadier motives are behind it, and they're called in to investigate and discover something rather more sinister. These robots have been illegally imprinted with a human ghost, which is as close as you can have in this universe, to, or at least the, the film's universe, to defining a soul. And this is done in a bid to make them more lifelike and uh, better at the sex, I would suppose. And this means that Bato and Togusa will have to investigate the monolithic and powerful corporations that made these sex bots, and given that in the Ghost in the Shell universe the corporations are as powerful than most countries, that's a tantamount to an act of war. It's largely following the same playbook as original, although it seems a little heavier on the gratuitous philosophy and literature drops out of seemingly nowhere. Also, I suppose the second time round it's not quite as memorable as the first. While it still looks stunning with its uh, mix of cityscapes and such like, they're not quite so impactful this time around. Thankfully, Kenji Kwai's score uh, returns and is still absolutely amazing. One of the most haunting aspects of the first film for me is the score of that. It's just a, such, a, such a well-realised and such well-orchestrated piece of soundtrack that is just so distinctive and that really helps Ghost in the Shell to continue with that uh, distinction. I would need, I think, a few more viewings to properly compare this to the original. This is the first time I've seen it, but if you want a hot take, it's a cut below the original, but more than good enough to carry the name without disgrace. And bear in mind that this is comparing it to one of the best animes ever made and a personal favourite, so that's certainly no disgrace at all. More recently, you could see uh, Ghost in the Shell, the new movie, which was made, I believe, last year, 2015. And I'm going to have to reserve judgement on most of this film for two reasons. Primarily, I'm not convinced that the subtitles on the copy that I got my hands on are particularly great or complete. And sadly, Watashi na Nihongo wa Amari Jozu Janai Desu. So while I got the gist of what was going on, I'm not claiming to know any of the intricacies of it. Secondly, I'd picked up on the grapevine that this was something along the lines of a redo of the 1995 original, but it's actually actually a follow-on to the recent-ish OVA series, I think called Arise, uh, which chronicled the lives of the Section 9 team before they joined Section 9, of which I have seen nothing, so to an extent I'm kind of walking in late to the final act on this film. But it has been designed to stand alone, and it seems that it would do so, language barrier aside, and it has the same mix of great action scenes, although this time it's rather more concerned with the probable obsolescence of humans who have been cybernetically enhanced, and what happens to them when they need expensive servicing and modifications when you're no longer, say, part of the military that funded these things. Where it falls short is the atmosphere. It looks terrific, but it doesn't have any of the grittiness that made the original stand out so much. The soundtrack comes from a favourite artist of mine, Cornelius, who I've not heard of in some time. And again, while it's good, 
it's nowhere near as iconic, unusual, or effective as Kenji Kawai's score in the original film. So, while the new movie is by no means a bad outing, it's perhaps best thought of as a cap to the OVA series rather than as a prequel to the original films. So, yes, it's probably something that you don't really need to bother catching up with unless you happen to have seen all the extra extended universe stuff, if you like, uh, that's already out there. So it probably requires a bit more investment if you want to get the full value out of it. But I would suggest if you're a casual fan of anime, you just stick with that original Ghost in the Shell movie, which is clearly the best and, uh, yeah, just an amazing work. So that's my recommendation for use. Do it. Do it now. Or at your earliest convenience. <laughs> We're about going to do this in chronological order, but apparently I can't remember an entire year. So go <laughs> <laughs> skip quickly back an entire decade but, uh, to 1985's Brazil, the first of two Terry Gilliam films that I've made into this podcast. This is a film that is set in something like an Orwellian dystopian future although this one very much run by complete incapable buffoons rather than some sort of malicious big brother and sees Jonathan Pricey's Sam Lowry trying to find a woman who he's seen in his dream and then suddenly finds in real life and to be honest I am not sure I can describe Brazil very well. Would you like me to step in at this point? As, el- yes. as eloquently as you were dealing with it there. <laughs> <laughs> Terry, Terry Gilliam is the thinking man's nut job, isn't he? Uh, a man, <laughs> a man whose post post Monty Python work differs from his alumni in that while they largely calmed down and fetched their slippers, Gilliam has grown progressively more unhinged and daring uh, in some fashion with each successive work. For many people, Brazil remains his masterpiece, and having watched it for the first time recently for this podcast, I can kind of see why. Jonathan Price is Sam Lowry. A lowly clerk for the Ministry of Information, which, as Drew pointed out, is an omnipresent, incompetent, bureaucratic outfit which oversees the day-to-day running of a nameless authoritarian state sometime in the retro future amidst a spate of terrorist bombings. And when I say bureaucratic, I mean bureaucratic in a way that would make even Garth Marenghi shudder. This is, a, <laughs> this is a society where secret police dispatched by armies of admin staff will swat you without warning on the basis of a smudged piece of paper uh, and then make your spouse sign a receipt for the receipt they give you when they cart you away for officially regulated interrogation. When one such case of mistaken identity results in a nobody by the name of Buttle being mistaken for wanted renegade handyman Harry Tuttle, played by Robert De Niro, there's a great concern on the part of Lowry's boss, Mr. Kurtzman, Ian Holm, as to how the nightmare of paperwork will be cleared up, especially when the interrogation officer, upon whose whim Tuttle becomes an ex-proletariat, played by Michael Palin, do you see what I did there, washes his hands. <laughs> Whoa, I'm guessing you didn't. On top of this, there are Lowry's oppressive mother, a cosmetic surgery-obsessed socialite concerned with his diminutive status in this nightmare society, and again, as Drew pointed out, dreams of a beautiful, elusive stranger who our protagonist thinks he may have seen at work to worry about. By and large, you know what to expect when you buy into a Gilliam movie, but Brazil delivers on a scale that really does the director's vision justice for once. The production design is nothing short of astounding, and while visually resplendent, the movie still manages to retain that familiar, comforting Heath Robinson aesthetic that makes one think the whole thing might come tumbling down at the tug of a single piece of duct tape. The cast too are wonderful in their roles, and as someone who's always found Jonathan Price to be pretty accomplished, mostly at playing Jonathan Price, (laughs) I was over the moon to see his excellent performance here dripping with equal parts to spare and nuance. 
De Niro is one of several actors who might otherwise headline a movie, but are happy to pop up here for 30 seconds to a minute, once or twice throughout the entire movie. Such was the revere surrounding Gilliam at the time of production, certainly among thespians, if not producers. <laughs> While the movie may lose some pace in the second hour, there is enough by way of performance, scripting and aesthetic appeal to carry it to a satisfying conclusion, assuming that you're watching Gilliam's cut and not that of producer Sid Scheinberg and his notorious Love Conquers All version. I think it's safe to say that I knew I'd love Brazil when, at around the 92nd mark, the question, <laughs> what do you believe is behind this recent increase in terrorist bombings, is answered with great sincerity, bad sportsmanship. <laughs> and nothing in the following two hours or so did much to persuade me that that gut instinct was wrong. Yeah, it's been a while since I last watched Brazil and I'd forgotten just how much I love this film. In particular, that first half hour to 45 minutes, which I'd contend is about as good an example uh-huh. of filmmaking as you can see. Amazing. Um, the the characterization, the transitions between places, the atmosphere, the world building is just, just absolutely faultless. As you say, it does kind of lose its way perhaps in the second half. It meanders a bit too much, uh, although I think it picks it back up again with the last 10, 20 minutes of his kind of descent into madness at the end. Mm. I think that that kind of provides a really effective cap uh, for the end of it. Yeah, the last Uh, reel picks up big time. Yeah. It's an engaging turn from Jonathan Price and perhaps the best supporting cast that Britain can muster. (laughs) Uh, Guys like Ian Holm, Michael Palin, Ian Richardson, Jim Broadbent, Bob Hoskins, and they all play these wonderfully quirky little iconic characters by themselves. It all kind of hangs together really quite wonderfully. Particularly, you've got to say how much I love the aesthetic. I don't know how well this plays outside of Britain, and I guess Mm. from the box office seats, not particularly well. Mm -hmm. Um, But just the way that it's mess of surreal fantasy and the way that the technology is well it's, it's kind of very british at least for the 80s at this mix of impossibly forward thinking and futuristic but also yeah. kind of crap <laughs> and, you know it doesn't quite work and it's all really unpolished it's sort of like the matrix if it was done by sinclair researcher amstrad way of describing it the tiny little computer screens and then but to see them you have to have this um yeah massive yeah. magnifying glass in front of them it's like that could be done by the government now yeah, sort of things they would do over something software based it's, now. It's the bear, it's the bear CRTs um, and whatnot. I, I actually, do you know what? Quite uh, apropos of nothing, I was sitting there thinking to myself, "My God, this must have been pretty dangerous to film." They probably couldn't get away with filming this now. All these like bear open uh, TV innards and stuff like that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> all these hundreds of extras running about. The fact that no one received a fatal shock from a capacitor at some point yeah. um, <laughs> is baffling. But if this if if this movie were to be made now it would have Bill Nye in it. So let us be grateful that it was, in fact, <laughs> not made now. This thing, I had also somehow managed to escape seeing Brazil until now, like you, Craig. Um, mm. I have begun in the last couple of podcasts to worry about myself, though. Because <laughs> oh, no! I don't like Brazil, and I don't understand why. <laughs> oh, no! No, really, because I think it's Terry Gilliam. I like Terry Gilliam a lot. Mm. It's got his sort of very particular style to it. It's got those the ridiculous, sort of Heath Robinson esque machinery and things that's going on. The that just kind of surreal, but should be really entertaining. And I really appreciate like the visual style of it. But for some reason, the whole film just bored me. So I think I need to go back and watch this film again. Now I was suffering from a lot of back pain when I watched this. Now that could actually be a legitimate contributing factor because there's so much about this film that I feel that I should like and I don't know why but it just didn't you don't need you don't need to feel the need to try and excuse yourself Drew it's just that I'll never speak to you again oh so there's an upside 
<laughs> There's, it doesn't star Bill Nye and Craig will never speak to me again <laughs> way when <laughs> no um, it's more just I'm trying to well, I may not justify it to myself I kind of understand it because there's so much here that normally I would like mm. it, that strong visual style the lampooning of ridiculous government bureaucracies again which plays as Scott said plays so well in this country in particular mm. the cast are fantastic with maybe the exception of doing it in that you could kind of forget him. Not that he's bad in it, I just don't think the character's kind of forgettable. But other than that, everybody else is such a memorable character. And then the guy that's Bob Hoskins' sidekick going crazy because somebody mentions that form, because Sam Larry mentions <laughs> the form to him. Mm-hmm. There's bits like that that normally would just absolutely, I'd be in love with it. But for some reason, I don't like it. Hey, Drew. Most of trying to work this through. And just it's one of those things. It. And you were recently hit on the head by a shelf. I was recently <laughs> hit on the head by a shelf and have back pain. So, Maybe I'm just completely broken, Craig. Maybe that's it. Maybe I'm completely broken. I don't like good things anymore. I think, I really think, honestly, this film's only weakness for me is the fact that, in that, as both Scott and I pointed out, at the sort of 45 minute, one hour mark, it loses sight of the lampooning bureaucracy thing and focuses more on the romantic subplot. And I honestly think that could have been excised in favour of focusing on some other stuff and it would have been almost the perfect hour and 45 movie but I do mm. not begrudge it that extra half hour or whatever it runs to because really I had such a blast watching this and I'm so so glad I found an excuse to watch it because probably were it not for this podcast it's one of those films I might never have gotten around to watching and I am so glad I did. Scott as you point out for me that first half hour to 45 minutes in particular is just all almost perfectly distilled and um, it's the pinnacle of the Gilliam aesthetic and I've I mean I I quite like a deal of Gilliam's work we'll talk about 12 Monkeys shortly but recently I was really disappointed by stuff like the Zero Theorem so it was refreshing for me to go back and watch this and Gets sort of really just when the guy's at the peak of his powers, just how just how fantastic um, a filmmaker he is. Not just visually, because I know his, his films are usually well, sometimes burdened, I suppose, with the expectation of a certain aesthetic. But just in terms of the guy's understanding of comic timing and... Yeah. His, his work with, I can't remember who the cinematographer on the, the film is, but there's some absolutely... Roger Pratt. Ah, Roger Pratt. There's some absolutely beautiful camera work in here and use of wide-angle yeah. lenses to really accentuate like the set design and stuff. And it's just unbelievable. It's I'm almost tempted to say that in its own sort of cut price budget way because it has got that thing going on where you keep expecting to see the set wobble everything's just not quite polished enough but it kind of suits it yeah it kind of fits in with the ridiculous um, bungle buffoonish nature of the absolutely It's not a, it's not, um, it's not a weak point. It absolutely complements the rest of the film. And in that sense, I, I honestly want to say that this is almost the equal of Blade Runner in terms of aesthetic, only in sort of string and sellotape, um, <laughs> as opposed to like neon, <laughs> neon high rises and stuff and noodle bars. I'm just, I'm so glad I came to this film, and I'm kind of really looking forward to watching it a, a second time soon because it's one of those things where you know that in the background there are a million things happening that you're not going to watch, uh, notice rather without yeah. repeat viewings. And particularly given how busy some of the stuff is, like I can't remember if it's completely uncut, but I mean, mm. there's a tracking shot early on as they're going through the Department of Information and they're mm-hmm. following the, the ones that, this orchestrated with you know, 
hundreds of extras just milling yep. about and going to place, which is on a par for my liking with the classic one from Goodfellas. Yeah, it's just a wonderfully well realized on a technical level shot, and it must have been just such an absolute nightmare to pull off technically. But you know, it's yep. there, and it, for something that's effectively kind of meaningless, but it does such a brilliant job in kind of establishing this this aesthetic and just so many little touches in the film that are so great. Like um, even just the way that Ian Holmes standing at the door watching all this this industry going about, and then as soon as he goes in the <laughs> office, everyone's off and just watch the telly (laughs) Uh, loads of lovely little details in this and especially that first uh, half hour 45 minutes just you know faultless faultless stuff and even if you're Uh, not a fan of Gilliam man the dude makes sure the money goes on the screen (laughs) he doesn't he doesn't get given big budgets to work with because of that strange thing where he's such a revered filmmaker that he basically isn't granted great artistic license most of the time and because he's so revered and has such a singular vision no one will give him any money and when he goes ahead and makes the film he's been asked to make the studios interfere um, so honestly I mean I don't know what the budget of this was but I can imagine it would have been a pretty limited budget maybe one of the bigger budgets he's been given to work 15 with million but I'm sure com- which is not a lot 15 million dollars that even, Ludicrous, even isn't in, it? Um, that's not a lot of money even back then and honestly in a, in a pre-CG era Every dollar of that is on screen somewhere. Mm. Unbelievable. Aesthetically unbelievable. And the fact that it provides so much comic enjoyment and contains such depth and such great performances to boot is just almost Mm. icing on a cake. I could see an argument for perhaps 12 Monkeys being Gilliam's best film on Mm. a number of objective levels, but for me this is easily the film that I enjoy the most of his output. Agreed. Uh, Python era accepted, which kind of half counts, half doesn't, but... um, I can't remember, was it Holy Grail he kind of half directed? I'm not sure. But anyway, outside of the Python outfit, this is easily his most enjoyable film for me. And yeah, heartily recommend it. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned the budget, Greg, for comparison, the budget for Blade Runner, which was just a couple of years before, mm-hmm. was almost exactly twice as much. Yeah, yeah. So he's done, he made that really stretch. He certainly did. Because <laughs> it's, the sets are so ambitious. Oh, hell yeah. Large. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Yes, I say I didn't enjoy this film, although I feel like I should have done it. And certainly, I'm, I'm willing to give it another go. Maybe you know when I'm not crippled with pain, yes. but yeah. um, or concussed. But the um, it's got an undeniable, an undeniably strong aesthetic, and you know, it sets it. Its world building is great. So you just you understand right away. Again, particularly, I think if you familiar with maybe some Python stuff, but just living in Britain, even without reading, having read 1984, you kind of get where the world's going. But he does such mm. a sterling job of building that world it's just that for me what happened in the world i didn't find particularly interesting indeed just as an aside there's perhaps two groups of prop buyers that i would feel sorry for one set would be working on like a zucker brothers film something like police squad or (laughs) something like that where you need to buy some of the most eclectic stuff and secondly it would be a gilliam production buyer (laughs) uh, because not only do you have to buy something that makes it look like a kind of retro futuristic assessment you also need a full set of japanese samurai armor (laughs) 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 because obviously you're certainly not going to get everything in the one shop (laughs) okay um now that I've remembered in which order years go... Now that um, you've relearned how to increment... Yes, uh, I, I can count <laughs> now. We move back to 1995 um, for the second of three films, actually, recovering from 1995. It's apparently quite a rich year for tech noir. Something in the water. Apparently so. This is also the second Perry Gilliam film we're going mm. to talk about. Although briefly here, because we intend to do this for a commentary episode this month... And also our second connection back to the French New Wave, which is probably quite unexpected when we consider we're going to talk about Tech Noir 
Now this is of course 12 Monkeys I'm talking about, based on the French New Wave short La Jetée, because I'm apparently incapable of coherent speech, Scott's going to take over from me. Well Monkeys, in a post-apocalyptic world, as scientists have figured out a way to send people back in time and do so to James Cole, played by Bruce Willis, uh, with instructions to investigate the army of the 12 Monkeys who are suspected of spreading the virus which drove humanity underground and to the edge of extinction. Sadly, 1990s America wasn't ready for the truth of the situation, and Cole is sent to a mental health facility, where he meets wild foul patient Jeffrey Goins, a wildly overacting Brad Pitt, and psychiatrist Dr. Catherine Riley, uh, played by Madeline Stowe. Trying to convince the suits doesn't work particularly well, so Cole tries escaping, but he'll find that his task intertwines with those two characters even after he's pulled six years into the future uh, onto the eve of the deadly outbreak of the virus. As a potted recap that'll do, as we mentioned, we'll be covering this in our commentary, so we don't want to spend too much on it, but it's certainly one of Gilliam's most accomplished films. Uh, There's a lot of Gilliam's unique stylistics present, particularly during the scenes set in the future, but perhaps unusually for Gilliam, there's more of a focus on the narrative, and it's a compelling chase uh, to track down and follow the scant clues that Cole has, with the added complication of everyone trying to convince him that he's actually crazy. And it all works really well. There's a forbidding atmosphere created largely from what, for my money, is Bruce Willis's best performance. Mm-hmm. The story's compelling and laid out well. I don't think it ever becomes confusing or hard to follow, although I know people sometimes disagree with that statement. All in all, it's a fantastic film. Probably in pseudo-objective terms, Gilliam's best film, although as mentioned earlier, I do prefer Brazil. Regardless, for me at least, both films are quite highly recommended. No, I would I would agree that up until the point at which I watched Brazil earlier this week, uh, 12 Monkeys was easily my favourite Gilliam film. And again, as you quite rightly point out, Scott, from any objective viewpoint, except perhaps the world building part, 12 Monkeys is probably a, a more accomplished feat of direction and in many of its technical aspects, but it's not crucially not as enjoyable uh, as Brazil, which is not to say it's not an enjoyable film uh, because it is still very very enjoyable indeed just that brazil probably is that little bit well probably largely the fact that brazil is obviously more comedic and lighter in tone uh helps in in that respect but depending upon what mood you're in (laughs) if you're in a more apocalyptic mood then you may well prefer 12 monkeys it's um a wonderfully accomplished piece of direction from gilliam and i think arguably his most serious and mature piece of work probably in terms of the storytelling and the narrative like you say Bruce Willis's performance I don't think he's bettered he's maybe equaled it and I'm trying to think of what performance that is I'm thinking of and I can't so I'll probably shut up but yes I don't think he's given a better performance than this and yeah um, obviously plot wise like you say a lot of people have found this too dense and I don't think it actually is I think there's a lot to distract one from the narrative if you're not careful but if you're paying a sufficient amount of attention it's not that complicated to follow I think it's just obviously quite uh, easy to be distracted by some of the sort of typically Gilliam-esque performances especially the one Scott that you mentioned from uh, Brad Pitt who is absolutely unhinged and I think mm. this is the first role this was pre-7 right? No year after 7 I think. Oh was it a year it? after? I want to say this was in production before 7 though right? Because I remember this I remember thinking that this was the first time that Brad Pitt was kind of being taken really seriously as an actor and displaying some sort of- blew up while they were producing this after I think River runs through it 
yeah, and something else sort of took off. And this, this and Seven time. very much saw him come of age as a, a critically accepted actor, as opposed to just the pretty poster boy, who, which I think he was the regard he was held in prior to this. So an important film in a number of respects. And yes, uh, one of those... Same year as Seven, Craig, sorry, same year. Ah, right, okay, there you go. Um, and it's one of those films as well, which has got a fantastic production history and which fortunately, in, and it will be of great aid to our commentary, was incredibly well documented throughout its production. And you can you can indulge in that with the, I think it comes as an extra on most of the DVD and Blu-ray releases, actually, the documentary The Hamster Factor, mm-hmm. which as well as being a fascinating insight into filmmaking is just one of the, the best sort of documentaries on filmmaking that you'll, you'll probably watch. It's uh, a fantastic watch in its own right, even if you're not a fan of the movie. So, yeah. A really notable entry in the the canon uh, of Gilliam and the genre itself. And yes, uh, I didn't get a chance to revisit it recently for the podcast, but it's one of those films that I caught up with uh, a year or two ago, uh, most recently, and still found it incredibly enjoyable. I think it's aged very well. And I would highly recommend you watching if you haven't already. I deliberately didn't watch it because we couldn't do the commentary, so I didn't see much point, mm. and I know it already. It's, um, oh, I think I'm not surprised you to hear it. It's my favourite Gilliam film because I didn't really get on particularly well oh, did you not like Brazil? No. Yeah. <laughs> it is a little different from much of Gilliam's work in that, in this case, he was a director for hire rather than it being his baby from the beginning. Mm. But he has put his undeniable stamp on the film. He's working with a much bigger budget than he had for Brazil. So just over a decade later, his budget is twice that of what he had for Brazil. Oh, wow. Um, but he's still, and the hamster factor shows you that he's still scrimping and saving for every penny he can find mm-hmm. to, to put his vision on the screen. But he does very successfully. It's probably his, I was going to say his most polished, but I think actually The Imaginary of Dr. Parnassus is a more polished film visually, but it's his most accomplished film. It's his most satisfying narratively. And yeah, he gets like, Bruce Willis's best performance that I've ever seen. He's had some smaller roles within other films which has been good maybe Pulp Fiction Moonrise Kingdom something like that I also recommend In Country which is not a particularly familiar one but worth a gander and maybe like he's quite good in Looper um, although I have the issues I have with Looper were never with him yeah certainly very good he gets that really sort of manic performance out of Brad Pitt as you mentioned Craig although again you see in the arms the fact too that everybody and there's got to come down to the director's credit a lot everybody seems really invested in it, invested in it because Brad Pitt himself put in a lot of work with talking to psychiatric doctors and things. And that's got to sort of come from the top down, I would think, of sort of believing in Gilliam's project. It's an accomplished film. It's one of the more rewarding time travel films and works in a sort of different way from the common thing that Back to the Future established. It takes time travel in a different um, mm. mode. It is grimy and grungy, but sort of really appealing visually in the same way. And yeah, for me, it's Gilliam's best work. And crucially for a time travel movie, as far as I recall, at least anyway, it kind of fits within the, the restraints of its framework. It's it's not caught out by logic fallacies and, and causality and stuff like that, like so many other films, like Looper, for example. Um, there was a lot of stuff there. A lot of people making time travel movies fall into that trap of uh, overcomplicating things and, and tripping themselves up with, with logic. But um, 
it serves the uh, it serves the plot really really well here, and it never it's not a movie about the time travel, right? It's just a it's just a device that's there to serve the narrative rather than being a thing and you know an end unto itself, uh, and it's never uh, it's never an issue, and it's not it's not a time travel movie if that doesn't sound too obvious. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly, and because it was set in the year after it was made, yeah. um, so everything was contemporaneous and with like how the city looked, etc. Yeah. And it wasn't going, I'll look at the rest of this time period. It's um, when you do see them in other time periods, it's like, oh, this has gone wrong. But it wasn't yet. Like, see, time travel wasn't really the point of it. It was more just actually one more struggle for him to overcome. And also, um, is it, because you're never sure for a lot of the film, certainly in the first film, like, whether he is actually a time traveller or whether he's just crazy. And the, the bit when he goes back to like, World War One and stuff. Yeah. You don't know whether that, I mean, because he could simply be having a psychotic episode where he believes he had his former life as a soldier. And it's only when you start seeing the photographic evidence, you start questioning, well, which mm-hmm. way is this going? But it's never like a case of, oh, it's just, we've gone back to the wrong time period and then, oh, we're going to see dinosaurs or, you know, so crates as Bill and Dead would have found. <laughs> so we move on then to the third film from 1995. And I've remembered which order years go in. 1995 is the same year as 1995. So... Got the right this time. Well done. <laughs> uh, I, I do believe he's gotten the hang of it. Um, Cette de Lost Children, or French La Cité des Enfants Perdus. That's which version I'll be sticking with. Directed by Marc Caro and Jean-Pierre Junet, most well known for Amelie, of course. So for me, at least, director duo Marc Caro and Jean-Pierre uh, Junet are cinematic marmite. Uh, while it's hard not to fall in love with Amelie's relentlessly upbeat and life-affirming charm, I am less impressed by works such as Delicatessen, their breakthrough feature, and Micmacs, both of which I found broadly insufferable. The City of Lost Children, which, along with Amelie, is often cited as the duo's best work, lies somewhere in between. Having read the plot synopsis, I was almost immediately forming assumptions as to the surrealist style and content of the movie, <laughs> as well as the cast. Junie and Caro have a tight circle of frequent collaborators, and by and large, those assumptions were Correct. Somewhere out to sea on a platform, dastardly deeds are afoot. The scientist Uncle Irvin, uh, a brain suspended in a tank, of course, has created a group of clones for some reason. His brother Crank, Daniel Emilfork, is afflicted with an inability to dream, causing him to age prematurely, or at least that's what I was able to gather, and has enlisted the help of his wife Martha and the clones, all played by Junie and Caro regular Dominique Pinon, to kidnap children from a nearby rundown port town in order to extract their dreams via some ornate mechanism of his own invention. Frustratingly for Crank, the children, understandably fearful of both he and his scheme, exhibit only nightmares, and Crank has been unable to halt the ageing process. The children in question are kidnapped by a cult of blind men, of course, who work in return for Crank's supply of sight-enabling headgear. Uh, Their most recent victim is Don Ray, the younger brother of Fairground's strongman One played initially at least bafflingly by Ron Perlman. One sets off in search of Don Ray, enlisting along the way the help of a young orphan girl named Miette, and together they encounter the many oddball characters of Junie and Caro's world. What enjoyment you take from The City of Lost Children will depend very much on your tolerance for its combination of both the director's established brand of surrealism and the acute gurning of the central players. I found myself frustratingly seesawing between enchantment and annoyance. Enchantment for the movie's many inspired visual touches and obvious stylistic flair, and frustration for the relentless affectation of the performers. 
It is the children who come away with least tarnish in this respect, with an especially strong performance from young Judith Vitet as Miette. And of the adults, perhaps Perlman is least egregious, though as it pans out, this is less to do with inspired casting. Pretty soon becomes clear that he's only here struggling with his phonetic French because his features fit wonderfully with Caro's scenery, uh, and more to do with the fact that he isn't actually given all that much to work with. So having said all of that, I have to reiterate that I'm not entirely down on City of Lost Children, and I don't want to give the impression that I hated this movie, but I was expecting to have enjoyed it a lot more given its reputation and status as precursor to Amelie. My best guess is that where that movie got away with its more self-congratulatory moments on a tidal wave of joy and whimsical affection, this one struggles to buy itself the same get-out-of-jail-free card on account of the darker tone and heightened performances. Still... At least it's not Alien Resurrection. First of all, just Greg, Irvin didn't create the clones, he's a creation himself. Yes, and even as I read that, I found myself correcting myself, but never mind. Yeah, this one, the tone is frankly all over the shop. Mm. Despite that, I actually really enjoyed this film. I didn't actually find the adults gurning quite in the way that you did, at least. And for me, it was entertaining, if madly surreal Mm -hmm. the tone was just pinballing around the place and normally that would drive me batty because i mean as an example you've got like really absurdist humor and surreal things and you have don ray just appearing in the dumb waiter having eaten crank's dinner (laughs) yeah which just cracked me up absolutely cracked me up (laughs) but then that's just a few minutes away from somebody having their mind controlled by an evil poison from a flea and stabbing people in the eye with screwdrivers yeah and normally that sort of bullet ricochet like change and whiplash change of tone would drive me crazy for some reason i just find myself kind of almost enchanted by this film I really, really like the the visual style and the strong colours, which are a real hallmark of Genet's work. Ron Perlman, I just thought, as you say, he's not given a lot to do, but I just found him quite a watchable presence there. I think that there's enough anarchic and funny bits in there that even the fact that, you know, children are being murdered, that there's enough goodwill from the bits that I found funny that it seemed to override that. Normally it wouldn't for me. You've got you know, people being killed and they're making jokes as they're dying, but at the same time people are getting blown up and children are killed and kidnapped and, oh, it's a strange film. That's undeniable. This film really impressed me. I'd not seen it until uh, a week or so ago. And it's just so astonishing visually. Beautiful is not the right term, given the grimness of the city and the kind of otherworldliness of the cult and the various other things that are going on in there. Yeah, you know, um, perhaps striking. Yes, it is, it's amazingly distinctive and mm-hmm. uh, captivating, I think, as well. Just a, a really incredible production design that really carried it through pretty much everything else that it wanted to do. This film just looks so amazing. I'll let it away with anything. It's just the colours alone are fantastic. I mean, yeah. Again, something to see later in Amelie, but um, particularly that mm-hmm. very strong green, greens and reds. Yeah. It's visually very appealing. I can very much see the argument for not liking it. It's one of the more unusual films that you could come across. Mm-hmm. Um, as you say, the tone is weird. It's a, a kind of, in the end of the day, I suppose more of a fairy tale than it is a tech noir in a great many aspects. Uh, visually, yes, it's quite noir influenced with a bit of steampunk thrown in there. And there's other noir elements in there like amnesia and the, the kind of baffled protagonist who's completely out of his element and mm-hmm. that kind of thing. But none of that's really critical to the success of the film. And it's really just this spellbinding visual Mm. aesthetic that's there and that let it cruise on a narrative that oftentimes doesn't really make a lot of sense but I'll let it away with that just because it looks so captivating and the characters that it's got are so imaginative and Mm. easy to like or detest as the case may be they're just it's it's just 
it's it's a, it's very much a film of extremes, and I can see why you may <laughs> it, not like it. It is another <laughs> example that this genre seems to throw up regularly of the production design and the cinematography are absolutely resplendent. It is a, a beautiful film to look at. Mm-hmm. I'm not yeah. going to deny that. I didn't enjoy yeah. it as much as I expected. I and again, let me say, I didn't hate it. I just felt perhaps neither one way or t'other about it in the end, but it is visually, it's stunning. Thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed this. Scott, you mentioned something that I'd meant to, which was that it's probably, it feels more steampunk than Ectmar. Yeah. But it's, I think, because it's just managed to build up so much, well, it's got so much charm. Yeah. Difficult to use the word charm, I think, because of the kidnap and murder of children. No, I think that's fair enough. But yeah, for me, it just built up so much goodwill with how it looked. And just, like I said, like when the kid is in the dumbwaiter and then just, he just keeps wandering off and eating stuff. When he <laughs> appeared in the dumbwaiter, that cracked me up. Because the juxtaposition, maybe that's what it is, is the fact you have like something brutal followed right by something mm. that should be funny, like when Marta is shot with the harpoon yeah. <laughs> and Donald Cunha's sister. Does it hurt? Yes, I'm allergic to steel. <laughs> yeah, I know, right. And that's the thing, like the, the odd outbreak of violence, and it is very few and far between. I mean, you're only talking about two or three occasions where something like that happens, but that is just an odd choice, right? There are other bits where like there's there's a couple of brief moments of nudity or something in certain scenes, for example. Mm-hmm. And you think, okay, well, listen, culturally, that's less of a deal in France probably than it is. Yeah, because well, the French a, are less stupid than everyone else. Yes, exactly. The, the French are less ashamed oh, of the no, fact the that they body. have things. <laughs> Like, yeah, the fact that they have things like a corporeal form. But yeah, the violence thing is, that is just an odd choice. And not really that, that I found off-putting about it. But there were one or two moments as well where I thought it was being overly indulgent and a little bit self-congratulatory. And I could have, I could imagine them sitting there thinking, oh, that's really great, that's really clever, isn't it? The the whole gag with the, the way that they steal the... Um, safe and whatnot with the whole thing with the mouse with the magnet on its tail and blah 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 and then later on in the film those couple of bits with the um i think it's around the episode with the flea with one and um, mm-hmm. that result in the the boat crashing into the pier where it just seems to be an example of chaos theory and it's not as clever as i think the movie thinks it is it's just by some point in that little scene i was just kind of thinking right okay hurry up and get to the bit where quite obviously what's going to happen is the confluence of these events is going to result in one having the sense knocked back into him um, and lo and behold that did happen about 60 seconds later than it should have done and I thought some of that stuff was just unnecessary I think charm is a pretty fair word too I think the film had enough charm to uh, to get by without overly complicating things but yeah there's just there's a mishmash of elements at play that will either mesh for you or they won't and just for myself I found some of them at odds with each other and as outstanding as the aesthetic is I wasn't as willing as perhaps Scott you've mentioned to let some of the more egregious aspects slip on the basis of the the fact that it is a, a, a feast for the eyes and I, I will absolutely grant it that. I guess my other uh, kind of closing comment on this is we spoke quite a bit in the last podcast last month about auteur theory and if that is something that appeals to you then you probably should be watching this film because totally. it's certainly the least focus group studio driven thing you could imagine in this yeah. instance it's very clear that the, the aesthetic that um, Mark Caron, particularly Jean-Pierre you know, has easily found its way on the screen. If you believe in the, the school of director-led filmmaking, then perhaps this is something you yeah. should be looking at just on that basis alone. Do you know what it is? It's Gilliam-esque. Yes. <laughs> I see, I see, um, thought that it sort of owed a debt to things like Brazil, actually. Mm, um, definitely. No, I said one thing I'd like to say in closing too, is just, I think for one of the things that really made this film for me is I just thought 
Dominic Pignon was fantastic. Yeah. Just running around gurning as you know, like yeah. eight different characters. Um yeah. see I just I just found that annoying. But I'm perfectly on board with I'm certainly not gonna dispute I can totally understand why a good number of people really love this film. And I, I certainly wouldn't debate it with you guys as a as some sort of point of friction that you enjoyed it and I didn't. I can totally understand that. It just on a personal level for me it, it didn't quite tick all the boxes, but almost very, uh, very nearly. It must be the charm, I think, Craig, and like third time we've mentioned this, but because yeah. the whiplashing tone would normally so irritate me, but here, no, I was, I was loving it. This Dominic Pinon gurning, like when he's tied to the post on the, um, <laughs> yeah. the oil rig. With and the dynamite. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, so he's, he's saying, the void equals infinity, and then gurns and grins like an idiot, and it's amazing. The expression on his face when the, was it a seagull or a hawk or something, lands on the plunger, <laughs> uh-huh. yeah. was was beautiful. And the bit actually where they were in the boat at the end, they're trying to row in, they're like, ah, it's following us. It's, yes, no, so you're, what do you, you mean following untied us? The Untie the bowlines, idiots. I was in tears at that point. <laughs> that, was, that was pretty sweet. Even if I wasn't 100% on board with this, the net result of it was this was uh, Juni and Caro refining their skills and their next stop would be Amelie. So I forgive I forgive them as, as little as they need my forgiveness. Um, <laughs> I can turn the other cheek because they, they gave us Amelie after this and for that we should be eternally great. And also, because it's always worth reiterating, Craig, we should still be grateful as you said, that it's not Alien Resurrection. Yes. (laughs) Let us never forget that. No matter how hard we try. One of the few films that after having having ripped it from the Blu-ray and whatnot from the box set and uh, and (laughs) saved it onto my network drive, I went back and thought, no, I'm never going to watch that again. That's nine gig of space I could use for something else. (laughs) Having finally left 1995 behind, we move forward to 1998 and Alex Proyas's Dark City. Yes, uh, you can't talk technoir without talking about Dark City, as with perhaps the exception of Blade Runner, it really does exemplify the aesthetic better than almost anything else. Mm-hmm. John Murdoch, played by Rufus Sewell, awakes in a dingy hotel room with no memory of where he is, who he is, or why there's a dead woman on the floor. As he decides sensibly to go on the lam, it's up to Inspector Frank Bumstead, played by William Hurt, to track him down as part of an investigation into a series of suspiciously similar murders. John's pieced together that he's separated from his wife Emma, played by Jennifer Connolly, and he tries to track her down to get some answers about his life and if he could really be guilty of these murders, but before getting too far down that route, he notices that he seems to have some unusual abilities. And at this point, I have to advise, if you've not seen Dark City, you should probably stop listening to this right now, go off and watch it, because while it's great no matter how you come to it, I think the ideal state is really knowing as little as possible before your first viewing of it. However, seeing as even the Blu-ray's dust jacket does not share this opinion, um, (laughs) we're going to head into what I consider spoiler territory, and to be fair, this does happen within, what, the first 15 minutes of the films or something like that. So yes, consider yourself forewarned. John appears to be developing a form of telekinesis, and he's approached by creepy Dr. Daniel P. Schreiber, played by an unusually decrepit-looking Keith Sutherland, who soon enough reveals the reasons for the city's oddities, the way it's always nighttime, the way everyone remembers local resort Shell Beach but doesn't know how to get there and indeed the general patchiness of everyone's long-term memories. It turns out that the city is a creation of an alien race, a hive society that's dying out and they're convinced that the key to their survival
survival lies in learning to be an individual, just like us humans. So they've built a city-scale lab that can be reconfigured or tuned in their vernacular to their whims, and they use Doc Schreiber's expertise to inject false memories and personalities into their test subjects. Murdoch's latest injection went wrong, leaving him with, uh, without his prescribed memories and somehow awoken an ability to bend the city to his will the way that the aliens do. Not best pleased with his state of affairs, the aliens are out to rein Murdoch in, as instructed by their creepy leader, Mr. Book, Ian Richardson, and to the even creepier enforcer, Mr. Hand, played by Richard O'Brien, who, after realising that Murdoch's abilities make him harder to catch than they expected, decides to take the memories that were due to go into Murdoch in order to better know and predict his actions, with the unfortunate side effect of turning Mr. Hand into the monster that Murdoch was meant to be. Not that he and the rest of the aliens were doing a particularly bad job monster-wise in the first instance, using human <laughs> dead as vessels and generally looking like a hit squad of Nosferatu cosplayers. It's a singularly unnerving turn from Richard O'Brien, nary a harmonica or mumsy in sight, just an intensely creeptacular look and a sound that is one of the most effective boogeymen in science fiction. The rest of the cast are equally good, with perhaps Sewell and Connolly's best roles and performances, and William Hurt's dependably stoic. Perhaps the real star of the show was the city itself, with Alex Proyas showing off some real flair and showing off some wonderfully intricate sets and darkness and shadow looking great and it really does fit the narrative very well. And it is a really great narrative at that, an imaginative and unpredictable blend of science fiction and gothic horror. Some have criticised it as being style over substance, which seems objectively wrong to me. Mm -hmm. There's some really deep issues of identity and character explored here and although it's fairly obvious in my opinion, but it doesn't actually hit you over the head with these uh, themes. It does credit you with a little bit of intelligence and uh, lets you make up your own uh, minded stories on these aspects. And certainly it does have style by the bucket load and perhaps on the first viewing it's tough to read past that incredible visuals. I can't really think of any other rationale for that criticism. It is a film that has, in my opinion, always rewarded repeat viewing. I always notice something new in Dark City when I come back to it. It is, in my opinion, one of the best bits of science fiction on film, so naturally I would highly recommend that you seek this out if you haven't done so already. Yes, indeed. It's Alex Proyas's best and most accomplished work to date. Yes. iRobot, I mean, some of his more high-profile films, iRobot um, is just ridiculous uh, CG nonsense Will Smith vehicle and The Crow, which a lot of people seem to revere, well, those people would be silly because <laughs> it is at best mediocre. I have a, I have a soft spot for 2000, and, is it 2000? When did Knowing come out? The Nick Cage remember. film? Yeah. Something around then. Uh, no, 2009. 2009. Oh, wow. I have a bit of a soft spot. Thanks, <laughs> thanks Droogle. Yeah. <laughs> um, I have something of a soft spot for knowing, but I understand it's not actually that great a film. But Dark City, I remember at the time, Scott, when it was first released, the cries of style over content and being baffled by it then. And then having revisited it kind of in the last uh, year or two, in common with a lot of the films in this uh, that we're talking about tonight, uh, I found even... Even more so, those people to be wrong. Uh, as you say, there, uh, some of the themes explored here are perhaps deceptively deep, which I, under other circumstances, might suggest have thrown uh, certain pundits, but uh, I prefer to go with the narrative that they're just stupid. Which you'd be right. You know, recent advances in, well, not recent because the technology is quite old now, but sort of the HD revolution has been a bit of a double edged sword for this uh, film visually because the Blu ray format. Um, is the first that we've had the the chance to see this film on home formats properly exploit the full sort of range of uh, of uh, depth of shade 
uh, in shadow that the film has to offer. DVD just, uh, MPEG 2 just wasn't up to the task. However, at the same time, watching this more recently in HD, I had to note that it does kind of show up how pony some of the effects work is mm-hmm. and how heavily reliant the, the movie was on some sort of like cheap morphing techniques that were on earlier formats, at least masked by the poor rendition of Darkness and Shadow. Having said that, it is still visually resplendent overall, if one can uh, lay aside some of that earlier CG work. As you say, Richard O'Brien, who we bizarrely don't see enough of in movies, or traditionally have not seen enough of in movies, gives a very unsettling performance oh, that lends creepy. the movie a real... Oh, yeah, it lends the movie a real sense of uh, overbearing sort of dread and menace yeah, that it might not otherwise have had. Yeah, and just the sight of him sort of floating silently through the air with his finger raised to his, his lips in a sort of shh motion or whatever just is... <laughs> the effect is far more unsettling than I'm able to make it sound. I think even too, Craig, um, just because you mentioned this bit at the moment, when this was originally released as well, he's still mm. going to be very fresh in the minds of most British viewers as the cookie guy that hosted the Crystal Maze. Yeah, absolutely. And yet still manages to pull off this really rather menacing, creepy character so well in yeah. this film. And again, and I, only now that we're talking about these films and actually laying this um, this podcast down, do I do I realise that actually so many of these films have in common the fact that not playing with great budgets, huge, huge budgets, but again, Proyas manages to get it pretty much all up on screen. Rufus Sewell, I haven't seen be better in anything. Uh, he's one of those actors who's really quite critically maligned and I have struggled to understand why I've always found him perfectly acceptable. Uh, if his crime is being a an actor of average capability, then I don't see that that's so much of a crime because there are a great deal of actors uh, uh, <laughs> less, less well endowed than him. It's solid um, and dependable in most things he's in. Yeah, absolutely. And I found him quite engaging here as a, mm-hmm. the sort of amnesiac. Yeah, I don't have a lot bad to say about Dark City. There are one or two issues with, I think towards the end of the film, perhaps it, it loses its grasp a little bit on the narrative and whatnot. And the final sort of, I don't want to give anything away if you haven't seen the film, because this is one of the films in the list that maybe people are slightly less likely to have seen. But the last sort of couple of minutes thereof is quite, it's not the most satisfying ending, I suppose. But it is a very accomplished piece of filmmaking that takes some sort of well-established tropes and it doesn't necessarily do something terribly different with them but it introduces enough new elements to make it very much worthwhile watching and everything in this movie those disparate elements could quite easily have been in opposition to each other but they all gel they all mesh quite well uh, and it is uh remains even now sort of what 19 years later mm-hmm. objectively a very a very entertaining and engaging view so yes i heartily recommend dark city and uh yeah, very, very good example of the genre. I think you're right, Scott. I think perhaps after Blade Runner, this is the uh, this leans probably heavily, more heavily on the noir aspect, mm. um, or maybe it, maybe it doesn't have the visual, quite the visual flair to counterbalance the noir aspect. It's not necessarily more noir intrinsically than Blade Runner, but it's it's very much a good example of the noir um, aspect of what we're talking about tonight, and just a really satisfying piece of filmmaking. I have a great deal of time for this film. It really is visually very appealing. It has that very strong noir statement, not an aesthetic of its own, Craig, as you say. It's that mm. very strong noir aesthetic. Richard O'Brien, um, creepy, great. Strangers in general just have a sort of really creepy vibe. They're really effective villains. And what I would say, if you're going to watch this, the version of this to watch is the director's cut mm-hmm. without the monologue, which explains it for the harder thinking, um, <laughs> which is uh, something put in the original release at the insistence of the studio, of course, where they had Kiefer Sutherland... So basically explain what the hell was going on. 
know for anybody who didn't want to go to the trouble of actually engaging in vain for themselves, the director's cut. I had admits that the last couple of times I've only I've only watched the director's cut. I'd completely forgotten about that monologue. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Lucky you. Um, <laughs> yes, it's obviously it's better without it as most films are. They're having a voiceover. This one particularly so. It treats the audience with considerably more intelligence than the other version had done. I think Rufus Hill's great in this. The the whole cast really generally pretty good. The aesthetic's great, the sound design, etc. All really very, very good. I would never go quite as far as any aspect of it's excellent, but it's all at the very least competent and the best very good indeed. It's influenced by a lot of films that have come before, but also you can see potentially that it's had influence on The Matrix, which came out the next year mm. and was shot in the same studios. So I think possibly then, but, not, a, <laughs> not a coincidence. But then what didn't influence The Matrix? <laughs> yeah, you know I mean? very possibly. <laughs> the, <laughs> the, do you know that I'm thinking about it? And per, perhaps the only element of the film, which is a weak point, is the fact that Jennifer Connelly, I think, is criminally underused. Mm. Probably sounds completely misogynistic to point out the fact that she is absolutely stunning in this film. And in saying that, I understand that I'm diminishing her capabilities as an actress. But this is Jennifer Connelly at the the peak of her beauty, I would argue, and she's um, she's still a captivating screen screen presence when she's singing that when she's singing that number in the Sweet. bar. It's yeah, it's hard. Uh, yeah, that was it. Sorry, Sway, you're right. It's hard not to be sort of entranced by it. And I only wish that she was given more to do with the rest of the script because she is still one of the most accomplished actresses working in Hollywood and when you watch stuff like this it just makes you wish think oh god how amazing could this movie have been mm. if she were she were given more opportunity to engage in, and given more material to work with it's a crime which unfortunately perpetrated by a great number of movies mm-hmm. um, so perhaps it's yeah because perhaps it's telling that I say I'm willing to overlook it just because it happens so frequently yeah. you know? she's the only sort of significant female character that isn't a murder victim um, mm-hmm. or basically the only female character that isn't a murder victim or a child actually um so yes you're absolutely right there they should have used her more for so many reasons the only other thing that i i was gonna say have a beef with which wouldn't be accurate the only thing that i just don't care for is at the end when rufus souls begin to neo style come into his own mind control powers to warp reality it seems quite whether it felt like that at the time i can't recall but it feels now quite amateurish almost that they have like the big shock waves coming out of the center of his skull to show you that he's affecting what's around him for the rest of it looking so somber reserved in many respects just having that almost cartoonish like thing mm. to show how like when he's battling with ian richardson's mr book character it felt very it's very it's very silly. much like trans <laughs> Very much like Transporter 2 when they're listening to the sound waves coming through the uh, the air ducting to figure out where Jason Statham's character is. It completely undermines the serious nature of the rest of the film. <laughs> yes, that's, that's the obvious analogy of it, yeah. Transporter 2, yeah. Uh, that's considered more of Transporter 2 than I remember. <laughs> it, it does, I know what you mean, Drew, it does kind of smack of the idea that they had the effect worked out in mind before they actually knew what the effect was going to be used for and it was just kind mm. of shoehorned in mm. it's like well we know how to do this make a bit of a make the screen look a bit wavy ah well that'll do for that yeah good good yeah okay fine yeah I mean because there are points early on when you like, just when the first time he's he's able to tune this, as this ability is called and you see sort of like maybe consider like a distortion in the air and he affects the ground that the people are standing on that they're chasing him and like okay you've sold it I, I get what's going on now okay later on I think you could have just had the things moving and to know that he was doing it because they've established that in the character but then no they just mm. seem to have to have these great 
Soap, George Lucas style shows of um, what was happening. But then, Drew, what what would you have but two men standing opposite each other looking as if they're in some sort of contest to take a dump first? (laughs) You know, you need that cheap... (laughs) You need that cheap effect work to to really carry it off. Are we done on Dark City? Yes. Yes, on which which excrement-related note... (laughs) Thank you, Craig, for bringing us down to the base level. You can always count on me, Drew. Let's um, move up from the basement. Let's move up, in fact, another 13 floors. <laughs> oh, see, I knew I was I was just offering you a lead into that, Drew. You were. You were, obviously. See how well we work together. The final film we'll cover in this episode, 1999's The 13th Floor. A little-known film, in as much as I'd never heard of it until we did this podcast, and obviously exactly how I feel about it is the... The consensus. This is a film that has some similarities to things like The Matrix again. It is the story of a VR pioneer, very much of Vogue at the moment, who is played by Craig Bierko, best known for his role in Cinderella Man, and who, when his boss is killed, finds that he's put in the frame for the murder. Trying to find out what happened to his boss and to clear his name, Douglas Hall is, um, that's Craig Bierko, because I've probably not mentioned that because I'm an idiot. Big Bierko. Um, is drawn into this intoxicating world of the VR simulation and at the same time is being seduced by Gretchen Moll's Jane Fuller, uh, the daughter of his former boss and being investigated for the murder by Dennis Haysbert's detective Larry McBain. As he gets deeper into this world and also his colleague played by Vincent Norfrio follows him in, he begins to find out that all is not as it seems. Very much keeping with the tropes of film noir there. Femme fatale, detective, 1930s Los Angeles literally this time. And to, I suppose to say much more about it plot wise would be, would probably be considering it's, away, yes. yeah, considering it's a, um, a lesser, I say lesser known movie I suppose over here it certainly is, I don't know about stateside but I get, I'm guessing of the of the larger budget films we'll talk about here, this is probably the one that least people will have seen. So there's a, there's a bigger chance of us spoiling it, I suppose. Mm-hmm. I think so. Um, so I had never even heard of it before um, we covered this. It's just when it gone completely under my radar. I hadn't I hadn't watched the Thirteenth Floor since it first was released uh, on home formats over here, and I think as you pointed out earlier, Scott, it went straight, straight to, to video. Yeah. Yeah, straight to video in the UK. It didn't get a cinema release. And I remember thinking at the time that I found it engaging enough and was surprised to watch it again then just a couple of days ago and realise actually how little of it I remembered. Very little, in fact. I don't even remember Vincent D'Onofrio's um, uh, involvement uh, for the first time round. It's a less involving film than I think we have spoken about in the majority of cases tonight. It's got a potentially intriguing plot, which I think it some degree squanders but it's not entirely without merit it's it's got reasonable production value and i i think it captures a a certain amount of atmosphere although it's by no means the most noir film that we'll we'll talk about Uh, although i do say that in full noise that a lot of that noir is provided by dennis haysbert just walking about as if he's (laughs) as if he's suddenly materialized from a chandler novel um (laughs) And he's, you know, at, at quite jarring odds with the rest of the movie. But it's an entertaining enough piece. I'm not, I, I find, I'm reluctant to say rush out and rush out and rent it if you haven't already seen it. But at the same time, I can't 
not recommend it if you've a passing interest in this kind of stuff. Um, I mean, criticism has been levelled at it, rightly or wrongly, at some of the performances. I think Craig Bierko in particular is singled out for ridicule by a, a lot of people or certainly a lot of critics in relation to this film. And I don't know, to some extent, Bierko going to Bierko. I don't know what I mean by that, but I got stuck in my... I got it stuck in my head as I was walking about mowing the lawn the other day after I'd watched this film. Craig Bierko is, I wouldn't say sleepwalks through this film, it's just that perhaps the man doesn't have the greatest amount of acting talent uh, in the world. He's he's no Rufus Sewell. Um, he doesn't have a lot of charisma, I think. Um, no, he's, lack, he's, yeah, he's lacking a certain amount of charisma, at least on the evidence of this, but then I'm struggling to think of what else I've seen uh, Craig Bierko in. The only other thing I can think um, of is Cinderella Man. Cinderella Man, which I've never seen. He's actually um, he's quite pilot, good the pilot for the aborted red dwarf in America. Oh, so oh, right. he was, isn't he? He was the Lister yeah. character, or, or Lister mm. as he's known. <laughs> Gretchen Mall comes in for similar criticism, but I didn't actually find her all that um, objectionable in this. She didn't dial in her performance, but it's, she's uh, not given a lot to do, which is probably my no, criticism of her character. It's, it's hard to do. If you've seen her, her though in Boardwalk Empire, you know that she can mm. really get her teeth into characters of, of an evil. Not evil, but of a scheming woman who's got an alternate agenda, which is how she's played for a lot in this. So compared to that, it's quite flat. She's got to tell it got in her. Yeah, Boardwalk Empire probably remains her, her best work, and after that, I think probably uh, the notorious Betty Page, Page yeah. was a yeah was a, a very uh, committed performance on her part. Um, so she she has a choice, but again, yeah, you're right, Drew. It's it's probably the dark city syndrome of just not being given enough material to work with. So I think it's pretty unfair to criticise her on the basis of a performance that isn't really given the material to inform it all that well. What I would say is if you've got a passing interest in the in simulation theory and you think you might be interested by this film, and I'd completely forgotten about this when we uh, posited this podcast, or I might have recommended that you guys watch it if you haven't already seen it, but it's actually the second time that the source novel has been adapted. I think the source novel is called Simulacron something or other. Yeah, eight or something or six. Yeah, like the first time it was adapted by uh, was by Rainer uh, Werner Fassbinder as a two-part TV drama for uh, German. I think it was German television, and I remember watching that a, um, a few years ago, and it not actually dawning on me that this it would have been adapted from the same source material. But that's perhaps probably because Thirteenth Floor had gone so firmly to the back of my mind. It is a much more intriguing take on the material, much more accomplished take than than this. However, it's also a lot more difficult to get hold of, I understand, so it might not be as readily available. So if you do have access to World on a Wire, check that out. I think it's 1973 or 1977. It's one of the odd years in the 70s anyway. Definitely worth a look in if, if you have the chance to prioritise it. If not, there's not a great deal wrong with the 13th floor. You can past comment on I don't know I just I've never been a fan of Vincent D'Onofrio I just find that in every film he's in he's Vincent D'Onofrio <laughs> and uh, perhaps oddly a lot of the critical assessment of this movie highlights him as uh, being a, a positive really um, yes so I went shrill there for how surprised I was by that uh, yes I don't know um, I, don't, I didn't mind his brand of scenery chewing in this quite so much for the most part it fit with the characters for me yeah. but you know I can it, it's very yeah. much him doing the Vincent D'Onofrio thing and if you don't like that then I can yeah. easily see why you wouldn't want to be subjected Absolutely. to it again but it's an interesting sort of footnote in the genre anyway put it that way mm-hmm. and yeah it has got a very intriguing premise which if it isn't perhaps done full justice by the movie then at least is worth thinking about 
and is interesting enough to uh, to warrant sort of further there's a lot of further reading you can do on that sort of stuff anyway mm-hmm. as a topic yeah i mean for me it's quite an interesting um topic it's quite an interesting film it does suffer from a few bad choices in production that were seemed dated even then actually which is you no know, mm-hmm. the robotic computer voice telling you that the computer was switching on that sort of that's a lot of the problem right it's it's a movie that wants to deal with a pretty heavyweight intellectual topic which then doesn't necessarily have the conviction to follow through on giving its audience the benefit of the intellectual yeah, doubt so it was very yeah. much like 1980s computer-based b-movie tropes and yeah, so yeah. there's the computer robotic computer voice and then and green lasers right exactly, i was going to say exactly a curtain of green lasers like when they're in the vr simulation how do we know they're in? Well, obviously lasers. Yeah. Ob- obviously lasers, Craig. What else could they possibly have to suggest that the machine was switched on? So shockwaves emanating from their forehead? Oh no, we've covered that. We've covered so, that. So yeah, so they've got a sort of ham-fisted, schlocky kind of elements like that that take you out of it a bit too because I'm not you're thinking, because of the subject matter, and that's always a, an interesting sort of thing to think about, and then it's just like that daft robot voice and not, not having it. It sounded stupid in war games. That was 10 years before, 15 years before. So I'm not buying it now. I think overall, I didn't really mind the film too much. It's, it's, it's fine. Yeah, uh, it is what I, it is. I can't really get behind the, the Rotten Tomatoes uh, view of it where it is almost universally loathed. I really can't get behind Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> a lot of criticism of it just seemed to essentially boiling down to it has a lot going on, uh, which I don't think... Too much of a problem here. Heaven, always seemed, heaven forbid. Yeah, it always seemed fairly obvious what's going on. There was nothing particularly. You know, it, it wasn't difficult to follow. It's not intellectually uh, challenged. Well, it, it's it deals with some intellectual subjects, but it's not intellectually um, rigorous. It's easy to take issue with some of the aspects of the technology, and particularly this whole kind of consciousness transfer things are very sugarly pegged to hang an answer <laughs> from. But the, I don't think overall there's a tremendous amount to dislike. I think the production values, particularly in the 30s, where uh, those kind of sets is clearly where they spent most of the money. Mm-hmm. And to good effect, I think that worked quite well. I think the main thing the film did wrong was come out in the same year as The Matrix, yep. uh, just mm-hmm. a, a few months after it in the US, and it just vanished. There was no oxygen left for this to consume, and uh, it died. And I don't think it was deserving of that fate. It's more interesting than complete ignorance <laughs> deserves for it. Um, I think it has its moments and it certainly has its ideas in place. It doesn't quite execute on them properly, but it's oh. an interesting little film. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad that I spent the, what, hour and a half, two hours watching it. And oh. I think it's a, it's a worthwhile entry in the genre. Not the top of the list for sure, but it's worth putting in there. At this point, I'd be more inclined to go back and give this another watch than I would The Matrix. Yeah, I would too, but that's because I know The Matrix back to front. So Yeah, a lot of it's yeah, just familiarity <laughs> yeah. with the material, um, but yeah, definitely. And what you're saying too there, Scott, about like some of the effects work and things like that, I think they've actually done quite a good job with only $16 million in 1999. Mm. Not a lot of money at all. When you think about the fact that Eraser... Only three years before spent a hundred million dollars and had a crocodile that looked like that. <laughs> How did you manage to bring up a razor in a techno art podcast? <laughs> Your luggage. I'm just quite amused. I can because it's been a while since I've had any reason to bag on a razor. Oh uh, no, I've I get, I've got a soft spot for a razor, but that's by the by. 
that's pretty much us reached the end of this uh, journey into tech noir. There's a few comments from Twitter that we've not managed to quite fit into the our narrative as it goes through. Um, certainly, as you might expect for something like tech noir, there's numerous mentions of Blade Runner, Tengishi, about Tengishi on Twitter. I saw Blade Runner when it was on cinema a few years back and it blew his mind, so produced for the big screen. But at the same time, there's certainly more people on Drew's side of the equation of this, like Fraser McGowan at Fuggins on Twitter, uh, when he says that your relationship with the film is complicated. It's, do you mean that it's but you feel the pressure to conform and say that it isn't? Because <laughs> he feels the same way. Film reactions at Film Reactions on the Twitters. Uh, also think it's, it may be an obvious one, but based on the picture, but Blade Runner is one of their absolute favourites of any genre. And uh, Zach Burns, uh, at Zach Burns 18 on the Twitter, anything that discusses Blade Runner is a shooter fire winner. So, yes. Uh, good lad, Zach. I knew a good count on Zach. Obviously, a lot of things about uh, Blade Runner. Zach Burns also mentions uh, Space Odyssey is perfect for this category. An amazing film, but one we discussed before. Indeed, we have discussed it before. Um, is it perfect for tech noir? I'm not. No, I'm not convinced of that shout out, Zach. Yeah. I'll take, I'll take that up with him when we go for a pint imminently. And yeah. <laughs> I, I guess one of the persons you might be going for a pint with is Nathan Dodds at Nathan Dodd 93 who is just more generally interested in films of technoir so hope we've delivered on your interest in that for this podcast and one of the other uh, mentions on Twitter is from the Moviesaurus Rex podcast which is at MREX podcast on Twitter it has to be the Terminator for them use of practical special effects attention and the flashes of future war fab and yeah, can't, I think can't disagree with that, that. Yep. Mm-hmm. and certainly it's a podcast as well well worth listening to if you want to Give them a go. Indeed, and uh, along with the movie Saurus Rex, uh, we gained quite a bit of traction on Twitter, relatively speaking, this month. So thank you very much to all of our new followers and our follow-backs. Very much appreciated, as always, I guess, if you can muster the effort. I know every podcast in the world asks you to do this, but if you can spare 10 seconds to swing by iTunes and leave us a review, it helps immensely. But you already knew that. We're not going to hold a gun to your head because we don't have a gun and we don't know where your head is. Also, obviously, if you want to get in touch and discuss further anything that we've spoken about in this podcast, you can get in touch with us through the usual channels. Uh, You can find us on Twitter, uh, either individually or as a group. Uh, We probably stand more of a chance in a fight if you you approach us at the AtFuds on film handle. But if you want to pick us off in stalkerish fashion one by one, then (laughs) feel free. And yes, I guess Facebook, SoundCloud, you know where you can find us, uh, the same places as everyone else. But yes, feedback, greatly appreciated any way we can get it. Podcast at fudsonfilm.com if you subscribe to that notion of, what's that really old-fashioned thing called now? Remember the thing that came after you put a stamp on things? Was it email? Electronic mail? Yes. Yes. If you're still using that old electronic mail, uh, feel free. Now we've made our usual plea for your reviews and told you where you can find us. Uh, Validators! Yes, please, please validate us. We will leave you for this episode. We will be back in short order to talk about Terry Gilliam's 12 Monkeys that we talked about a little in this episode. We are producing a commentary for that. That will be with you in just over a week. Until then, though, we will bid you adieu. I have been Drew. With me, as always, Scott. Bye. And Greg. Fairly well. Fairly well.